All right. Good morning again, church. Listen, uh, this morning we are continuing uh, our series in First Peter entitled Living Hope. Living Hope. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to First Peter. And uh, we actually, if you're, if you're being in, in, insightful, intuitive, you actually know this is a passage we've looked at last week, okay? But we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle, something I wasn't really able to address last week that I really want to talk about this week. So the passage this morning is First Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. So you can turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The, the passage will be here on the screen uh, behind me. Now, before we jump into the, the message today, I want to actually let you know that next week we are going to be talking about marriage and about relationships, the, a romantic relationship in general, in, in particular. So we're going to be talking about marriage and what it looks like to have a God-honoring marriage. So kind of just giving you a heads up on that. Um, as you plan your week, uh, make sure to come back for that. Now, this week, uh, like I said, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. He says, as you come to him, him being Jesus, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined it's the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about this, this concept that Peter brings up. In this passage, Peter describes Jesus as a stone and or a cornerstone three times. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this concept of Jesus as our cornerstone. And the reason why I want to look at it is because I think that if we really start to get an understanding of what this actually means, it will have major implications on how we live our lives, Okay. So I want to look at this concept, and I want to look at it under three headings. The first thing we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the need for this cornerstone. The second thing we're going to look at this morning is we are going to look at the marks of this cornerstone. And then the last thing we're going to see is we're going to see the cost of this cornerstone. So the need for it, the marks of it, and the cost of it. All right, so let's begin with the first heading, which is the need for this cornerstone. And to do that, I want to reread to you verse 7. Look what it says in verse 7. Of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the corner stone. So what we see here in verse 7 is we actually see the need for a cornerstone, the need. Now, what do I mean by the need? Here's what's interesting. A lot of you may not know this, but in, in Jesus' day, in Peter's day, whenever a building was built or a house was built, if that building was made of stone, you couldn't start building unless, there was unless you had first placed a cornerstone. Here is an image for you that I want you guys to see. On the left, we have a pagan building, and on the, left, on the right, we have a Christian building, okay, because there's a cross. Uh, but no, I'm kidding. Um, but here, but here, here's, what, here's what, a, what, a, what a cornerstone looked like. 
You see, in our day, when, when we want to put a foundation in a house, we, we dig a really deep hole, and we put a bunch of concrete, and then we put the house on top of the concrete, right? That's not how houses were built or buildings were built in Jesus' day. What you would actually need, first and foremost, you would need this really, really big stone called the cornerstone. And the, the, the building of that cornerstone, you had to be very particular and very precise because every single stone was going to be based and aligned with that stone. So if that stone was even slightly off, the whole building would be off. And it, it would actually get worse the further the, the stones went. You, you probably wouldn't see it as much at the beginning, but then the further you went, the more crooked and the more, the more unstable that the building would be. And so what you see is, is that back in Peter's day, the reason why I think it's so insightful for him to use the language of cornerstone is because any of his readers would have known just how essential a cornerstone was. You, can, you could not have built a building or a house without a cornerstone. And here's what I would argue. Just like you couldn't have built a house without a cornerstone back in Peter's day, you actually can't build your life without a cornerstone either. A, a cornerstone is an absolute necessity if you are a human being that is alive and breathing. Now, here's why this is so important. Because maybe you're sitting here today, and you don't don't consider yourself a spiritual person or a religious person, and you're here kind of just figuring it out. And you're thinking, oh, well, a cornerstone is only for the people who believe in Jesus. Actually, that's not the case at all. Because what you're going to see Peter say is that every single person has a cornerstone, whether they are believers or not. So, so So there's only two types of people in the world. There's the people who have Jesus as their cornerstone, And there's the people who have something else as their cornerstone. But every single person in this room, if you have a pulse, you are building your life on a cornerstone. That's how we work. Actually, if you go back to verse 6 or 7, I think, in verse 7, he says, yeah, in verse 7, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, in that text, in the original verse, the builders there represents a specific group of people. But one of the commentators that I was looking at this week, he said, when you look at this passage in our day, the word builder can actually describe anyone. Every single human being is a builder. Every single human being is building a house. And as a result, every single human being has chosen a cornerstone. So the question isn't whether you have a cornerstone or not. The question is, is that cornerstone Jesus or no? Or is it, is it Jesus or is it not? That's the, the better question. But everyone has a cornerstone. Now, here's what's really interesting. One of, the, one of the assumptions that we can make when you hear this, right, is you can think, okay, if there's only two options, Jesus is my cornerstone or something else is my cornerstone, then that means religious people have Jesus as their cornerstone and irreligious people don't have Jesus as their cornerstone. That's what people assume, right? If, G- if there's only two options then religious people are doing it right and irreligious people are doing it wrong. But here's why if you think that you're not wrong, you're, actually you're not right and you're, it's actually an unbiblical thought that you have. Here's why. Because actually in its original context where it says the stone the builders rejected has become their cornerstone, Jesus actually quotes that passage in Matthew 21 and the people who he's describing is not pimps, it's not prostitutes, it's not the tax collectors. He is talking about the religious people. He's standing in front of Pharisees, and he describes them as the builders who have rejected their cornerstone. So if you're sitting here today, and you're thinking, oh, okay, okay. So that means there's only two types of people in the world. There are the, 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 the worldly, pagan, irreligious people who don't have Jesus as their cornerstone. And then there are the moral, religious, legalistic people who do have Jesus as their cornerstone. No, no, no. According to Scripture, there's, no, there's, there's not only two options. There's actually three options. And here's what's interesting. Even though the religious person looks very different from the the worldly pagan person, 
their cornerstones are actually very similar. Even though on the surface they look very different, at the, at the, at the root, at the bottom of their lives, they look very similar. Here's why. Because both have themselves as their cornerstone. Both the person who's never, the, the person who's never been in church and the person who's in church or at mosque or at a synagogue every weekend, they look very different on the surface, but they actually are building their life on the same cornerstone, and that cornerstone is themselves. So, so let, me, let, me, let me do it like this. Someone who is, who is worldly or, or, or unchurched and, and has a cornerstone, let's say one of the things, they're, 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 let's say that their cornerstone is their career. And, and what they want more than anything else is to find their identity in their career advancement, in their performance in their workplace. So, so their cornerstone is based on their performance in their career, right? A religious person seems very different, but it really isn't that different because a religious person is finding their identity in their performance instead of it being in business, it's in the church or in the synagogue or in the mosque. But it's still all about them. So they look very different on the surface, but they're actually motivated by the exact same thing, and they're actually grounded in the exact same thing. They are their own cornerstone. So you know Jesus isn't talking about religious and irreligious people because he's calling religious people out when he quotes the verse. So what this means is that there's a third category that we don't know about. Real, it, Jesus only becomes your cornerstone when you are no longer trying to save yourself, when you are no longer trying to uh, 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 find your identity, your significance, your satisfaction uh, in, in something smaller than him. So the third option is not, so the option that we got to go with is not irreligion or religion, it's gospel. The gospel is the only option. The gospel is the one that says, I can't be my own cornerstone. I can't be the, I can't carry my own life because my life will crush me under its load. Only Jesus can be my cornerstone. Okay? Now, here's the other thing that's really important. When you look at this passage, like I said, there's no such thing as someone who doesn't have a cornerstone. Every single person is building their life on something. And so the question is, what are the different types of cornerstones that we can build our lives on? And actually, there, there are several examples. I don't have time to go through all of them, but, but let me give you some. See, one of the things that you can build your, your life on, I mentioned it already, is your career. Your career. The, the, the cornerstone that's, that's propping your life up is your career. So it's your advancement, is your raises, is your you know, moving up within the company. It's, it's all about your career. And every other stone in your life, if that's your cornerstone, here's the, here's the danger of having something other than Jesus as your cornerstone. That if, if your career is your cornerstone, then everything else in your life has to adjust to that cornerstone. So, so you're willing to sacrifice your children for your career. You're willing to sacrifice your health for your career because every other stone has to line up with that stone because that's the cornerstone of your life. I was reading a book a few, uh, a few months ago, and there was two businessmen sitting next to each other, and there was an older businessman who had been really successful in business, and there was a younger guy who had just started off. And the younger guy's like, man, I want to know. He was wearing this watch, this Rolex watch, the older guy, right? And I'm pretty sure the older guy was a believer, right? And the younger guy says, hey, I want to know what do I got to do to get a watch like that? And so he's expecting the older guy to tell him, you got to work hard, you got to, you know, you got to put in 110%, you got to stay long hours. He's like, you got to sacrifice about 15 dates with your wife, 12 soccer games. And like he gave him, everything he gave him was in relation to his family. If you want this watch, 
here's the actual price you got to pay. And it's not a dollar amount. You see, when, when something other than Jesus is your cornerstone, everything else in your life has to adjust to that cornerstone. And everything else in your life suffers as a result. Imagine if in our solar system, you took the sun out of the middle of the solar system and instead put Earth there or uh, 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 Pluto there, right? What would happen is every other planet would fall because the sun has to be at the center for everything to work the way it works. When you put something other than God at the center of your solar system, don't be shocked when your whole life falls apart. Because whatever that thing is doesn't have the gravitational pull to, to carry your life, to, to, to go under you and hold up your life. Okay? This is why when, in 2009, when, when the, the economy crashed, there was so many, this wasn't actually advertised at all in the news. It barely, they barely talked about it. But a lot of the CEOs, there were several CEOs of major companies that committed suicide when, when the, the economy crashed. Why? Because they weren't just losing a job, they were losing their cornerstone. See, when the economy crashed, their house fell. That's where they were finding their identity and their security and their value. And so there was no purpose for living because their God had died. They were religionless. That's the danger with finding your identity and having your cornerstone be your career. But it's not just your career. For other people, maybe what you put as your cornerstone is not your career, and maybe it's a romantic relationship. And here's what's funny. That romantic relationship can be someone you're already married to, or it can be someone you're engaged to, or it can be someone you're dating, or it could be someone who hasn't even shown up yet. And a lot of people right now, the reason why they're struggling in their singleness or in their relationship is because their cornerstone is this either real person or imaginary person, and they expect that person, either because they're there already or because one day they're going to show up, they expect that person to carry the load and the freight and the weight of their lives. But here's what happens. When you do that to someone, what you actually do is you crush them under your expectations. Listen, your romantic partner, either the one that's there or the one that's going to be there at one point, at some point, has just as much chance of carrying your spiritual house as they do of carrying your actual house. See, no one in their right mind would ever say, hey, yeah, go ahead and put my wife under the house and just let it fall on her. No, it would crush her. Wizard of Oz, remember? You know, it, just does, it doesn't work, right? You, it, it just, they wouldn't be able to do it. But listen, they have a much better chance of holding up your actual house than they do the spiritual house that you're trying to build on them. You are going to crush them, and you are going to ruin the relationship. And I would say, you love them so much, but it's actually a very selfish act for you to expect from them what only Jesus can give you. The most loving thing you can do is demote them back to where they belong. Because they make a wonderful gift, but a terrible God. Okay? Another, another, another cornerstone, especially in our day, is, is children. Children, same thing, wonderful gifts, horrible gods. And what happens with children is that we, 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 and this might be because maybe we weren't parented the way we thought we should be parented, or, or maybe it's because our marriage isn't where it should be. Well, what we can do is, in our desire to try to control something, we can try to put our children as the cornerstone of our lives. You know your children are the cornerstone of your lives when your calendar revolve around them and not Jesus. When soccer practice or baseball practice is more important than church, Jesus 
your, your, your son or your daughter is your savior, not Jesus. Okay? I, I, that's why I find it so interesting when, when you have parents who are like, oh, my child was so passionate about Jesus, and then he got to, he got to school and it all fell apart. It's his college and it all fell apart. Actually, your son was learning worldliness way before he got to school and college. Your, your son was learning idolatry way before he got that secular professor. Because if soccer and baseball are more important than Jesus, you're teaching them paganism before they actually experience it outside. Okay? So your children, and think about it, if an adult will be crushed under those expectations, a 12-year-old will definitely be crushed, and much quicker, actually. And it's funny because you're doing it because you love them so much, and yet you end up losing them when they're older because they are, they are so crushed by your expectations and what you need from them that they end up either, either being totally bitter towards you when they get older or they end up being the exact opposite of you because they don't want to do that to their kids. That's what's interesting about idolatry, that the very thing it promises you, it actually ends up taking out from under you. So you think by elevating my kids, they'll love me, and then you end up losing their love by elevating them. It's, it's, it's like this counterintuitive thing, okay? And so that's another example of a cornerstone that just will never work. And the last one I'll give you is money. Money is a very big, very dangerous cornerstone, but it's a very common one. And what we start to believe is that as long, especially if you're broke, like Lily and I have been broke for so long that like when, when you're broke for a really long time, you're convinced that when money shows up, everything's going to be better. Like when we first got married, I didn't know how to manage money at all. And then as we've gotten older, we, we're now starting to become steady. And for the first time in years, we actually now have savings and the savings is growing. And you know what's sad? That when I, every so often, I just go on my, on my Chase account and I just look at my savings just to make sure it's still there. And you know what's that? The feeling of peace that I get when I see that money, the only, ever time, the only other time I feel that peace is when I'm reading the Bible or spending time with the Lord. That's how dangerous money is as a cornerstone. That I'm convinced that as long as there's money, I'll be okay. And the same emotions that come out of me when I look at my bank account are the same emotions that come out of me when I'm worshiping Jesus. And that's idolatry. That's why in the Old Testament, it says that for the wealthy man, for the, for the, the rich man, their wealth is a, strong, is, a, is a high tower. So in other words, the wealthy person, they, they stand on their high tower, and their high tower should be God, but it's actually their wealth. And they think, as long as I have money, no illness, no calamity, no issue can ever take my legs out from under me. That's why money is such a dangerous cornerstone. If you're sitting here and you're broke and you have debt, trust me. Don't fall into it. It doesn't work. All the problems that I thought would be fixed as my debt went away are still around. I'm the same person, I have the same heart, and I need the same Savior. Amen? So, those are all examples of uh, cornerstones. That, and there's, like I said, there's several more. I just don't have time to look at them. Now, here's what's interesting about this concept of cornerstone. And, and I've talked about this here on Sunday morning and also in small groups. Actually, I was just in a small group this past weekend. We talked about it. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in, found in Matthew 5 through 7, when Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, he says something very interesting. He says, listen, there's only two options, guys. 
Either you listen to me and build your house on rock, or you ignore me and build your house on sand. He only gives two options, okay? Rock or sand. Believe or disbelieve. But here's what's interesting. If you look at what Jesus says in the passage, what he actually says is, when the weather's perfect, the two houses look exactly the same. When the sun's out and there's no cloud in the sky, you can't tell whether your house is on rock or on sand. You know what he says? You know when he says you can tell? When the winds come and the storms show up and the floods rise. That's when you can tell what your house is actually built on. And so if you're sitting here today and things are relatively okay, you can be on sand as we speak, but you're not going to know. You're going to know when the storms come and the winds blow and the floods rise. As a matter of fact, I would say that I've been a Christian almost 15 years now, and in my walk with the Lord, most of my growth has come when the winds have blown and the storms have showed up and the floods have risen. So here's the thing, here's the thing. A couple weeks ago, we were talking, no, maybe three, four weeks ago, we were talking about suffering, right? And I said something that seemed really almost counterintuitive when I first brought it up, but then I explained it. Here's what I said. I said, in a weird way, suffering is a good thing, and we actually need to learn how to steward our sorrow. We need to steward our suffering. And here's why. Here's why suffering is a good thing. Because suffering can only do two things in your life. It can either reveal you're on sand or remind you that you're on a rock. Those are the only two things that suffering does. Those are the winds and those are the storms. Suffering could do one of two things. It reveals to the people who are on sand that they're on sand, or it reminds the people who are on the rock that they're on the rock. That's why suffering, that's why James can say, count it all joy when you experience trials of all kinds. Only a Christian can actually say that because suffering pushes me back into the rock, leans, help, causes me to lean right back into the rock that I had placed my faith in to begin with. Suffering reminds me that the message that I initially believed is true, and so it forces me deeper into that message. Okay? Suffering reveals, reminds. It reveals sand to the people who are on sand, and it reminds the people who are on rock that they're on rock. Now, here's what's interesting, though. The problem with a lot of us, though, and when I mean a lot of us, I mean people who believe in Jesus, people who are on rock. You're hearing me say that right now, and you're like, amen, pastor. You tell them, yeah, they're on sand, and we hate sand, right? Like, like, like. But here's what's funny. A lot of us, we've placed our faith in Jesus. And even though our salvation is on the rock, we have a lot of summer homes. And our summer homes are really close to the beach because the weather is really nice over there, right? We have a lot of summer homes. And Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but don't touch my money. Don't touch my relationships. Don't touch my future. Don't touch my career. Don't touch that. Or another way you could look at it is we, our, our house is on the rock, on rocks, right? But only certain rooms are on rock. And, and there are certain rooms in the house that have sand still. Like, so you go into the living room and it's sand, but then you go into the bedroom and there's rock. Like, so, so we have a house that is partially on rock, partially on sand. And then when the storms come and the winds blow, the parts of your life that are on rock stand firm, and the ones that are not start falling apart. And the Lord uses the suffering to reveal to you there is still sand in your foundation. And you need to deal with it if you're going to walk with me. Okay? So as we move to the, to the second point, here's the question I want to ask you. In light of everything I've just said, what is the actual cornerstone of your life right now? Is it Jesus or is it something else? And even if you're a Christian, Jesus might be the, 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 your rock, 
subjectively up here in the, you know, objectively, like it, it, as, a, as a concept, but is he actually your rock when you're at work? And is he actually your, your rock in your relationships? Is he actually your rock when you look at the future? Is he actually the rock? Ask yourself that. And for those of you who are small group leaders here, ask your group that this week. We all say Jesus is our rock, but what is our actual rock? And think about, think about this. My house is on a concrete slab. Lily and I, we have no crawl space, no basement. Right? My house is on a concrete slab. The only thing my house has to do in relationship to the foundation is stay still. Don't move. Just rest. My question for you is, what are you resting in this morning? What are you leaning on? That'll reveal what your cornerstone actually is. Okay? So, the first thing we see is we see the need for a cornerstone. The second thing we see is we see the marks of the cornerstone. Look what it says here. I'm going to reread to you um, uh, verse 6 through, through 8 because this is, this is really important. Here's where we see the marks. He says, see, and in, in the King James it says, behold. Behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become their cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. What we see here in verses 6 through 8 is we see the marks of the cornerstone. Here's what I mean by the marks. Whenever you buy a house, Lily and I have bought two houses already in, in our short time together as married, married people. We bought two homes, right? Whenever you buy a home, one of the first things you have to do before you buy a home is you have to have an inspector come and look at the home, right? It would be the worst financial decision ever if you buy a home and don't have an inspector come look at the home. What an inspector does is he shows up with a checklist and he goes through the checklist systematically and tells you what parts of your house are good and what parts of your house need to be fixed, right? And as he goes through the checklist, he looks at the foundation of your house. He looks at the, the, the way the rooms are set up. He looks at everything. And then he tells you whether or not you should either buy the house or not buy the house or ask for this or ask for that, right? That's what an inspector does. And what I want to do in, in this second point, as we look at the marks of the cornerstone, is I want to I be a home inspector for you. I'm coming into your house right now, and I want to make an inspection. I have a little checklist here that Peter gives me. And what I want to do is I want to I give you, there's three things that Peter puts on this checklist. And as you go to this checklist, this checklist will tell you whether or not you are actually building your life on Jesus as your cornerstone. If those things don't add up, then the symptoms will tell you there's something wrong with your foundation, Okay? So the first thing that he says you can look at in order to determine whether or not your foundation is right, whether or not you're building your life on Jesus as your cornerstone, is by looking at your view of Jesus. What is your, your perspective, your view of the cornerstone? Your view of the cornerstone will tell you if it's actually your cornerstone or not. Go back to the previous slide. Look what he says here. This is, this is really important. He says, now, to you who believe... Uh, this stone is precious, precious. So he's saying that if, to so those who believe, so those are the people who have placed, who have Jesus as their cornerstone. If Jesus is actually your cornerstone, one of the ways you can tell if he is is by looking at your, percept, your, your perspective of him, your view. What is your view of Jesus? If Jesus isn't precious to you, Jesus is not your cornerstone. Okay? 
Because the word precious, here's what it actually means. The word precious in, in Greek, it means something of high value, something that is uh, dear to you, something that is highly esteemed in your eyes. This is what the word precious means. So here's what this means. It doesn't mean that you always feel about Jesus that way, right? You're going to have bad days. But what it means is from the day you become a Christian, if you walk with Jesus for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 20 years later, Jesus should be much more precious to you than he was when you first started walking with him. You see, when you first place your faith in Jesus, Jesus is very useful to you. But the longer you walk with Jesus, Jesus goes from being useful to being beautiful. If Jesus is still only useful to you, then you're not growing. Then Jesus is not your cornerstone. And if he is, you're not really actually leaning on him. He should be growing in beauty as you walk with him. You know, one of the illustrations I used a few months ago to kind of illustrate this to you guys was my, my relationship with soccer. When, I, when, when my family moved out from Chicago to the suburbs, I was in third grade, and in our desire to be, you know, suburban, we, they put me in soccer. And I had never touched a soccer ball in my life. Like, they're like, hey, you're going to go play soccer? I'm like, okay. So I, so, I, so I go, and I show up in soccer, and we had to buy cleats and the shin pads and everything because I had never played soccer. And then we get there, and I never really enjoyed soccer growing up. Like, it was just something I did. My parents put me in soccer, and soccer was what I did. Then when I got into high school, I continued playing soccer, not because my parents were forcing me to, but because now soccer helped me get chicks, and I wanted to get girls. Like, I just wanted to get as many girls as possible. And so soccer helped me in my ultimate goal, right? But I still didn't really like soccer that much. Soccer was a means to an end for me. But here's what ended up happening after I graduated from high school. After I graduated from high school and then went to college and came out of college, I started to appreciate soccer as a sport in and of itself. To the point where I haven't really played soccer in years. But just yesterday, I watched a full match of football, of soccer, because I love soccer so much now. And what's happened to me over the years is soccer went from being something useful to me that was a means to an end to being something that's beautiful to me that is an end in itself now. It's like the people who like had to do a, a, a class on classical music when they were younger, and then now they actually enjoy classical music now. It goes from being a means to an end to being an end in itself. That's how it should be with Jesus. See, when we first place your face in Jesus, you don't know any better. You just know you need him as a savior. He's very useful to you. He's very practical to you. But the longer you walk with Jesus, he should go from being useful to being beautiful. He should go from being practical to being precious. If he's not, then you're probably not building your life on him. Okay? So that's one of the ways you can tell. How you view Jesus. And here's what's funny. Look at, look, there's an opposite to this. It's not just, so, those, so precious should be how Jesus looks to you if, you're, if he's your foundation. But, but Peter actually tells us what people who, aren't, who don't have Jesus as a foundation do with him instead. Instead of him being precious, look what it says. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, the word rejected in English seems very harsh, right? Like, rejected seems like there's animosity between you and God. And the word rejected almost comes off like you are, you, you're an atheist, and you're, you're bitter, and you're angry, and, God, and you want nothing to do with God. But that's actually, that's, that's actually not what the word means in, in Greek. The word rejected in Greek, this is what it means. I want you to follow along with me. It means to test something, to consider something, and then after you've tested it and have considered it, you have decided that it's unqualified. You have decided that it's not good enough. You have decided that it's not genuine. That's what the word rejected actually means in Greek. 
So it means that you, and it's in the aorist indicative tense, so that means it's a past event that happened once and you're no longer going to do it again. At one point in your life, you considered that cornerstone, you, 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 you scrutinized him, you tested it, and he came, out, he came off wanting. So it's almost like Jesus, like you, you, you are like taking applicants for the cornerstone role in your life. Jesus showed up, he gave you the resume, and you're like, yeah, no, you're underqualified, man. Sorry, don't want you. That's what the word rejected means. Here's why this is so important then. When the Bible says you've rejected the cornerstone, it doesn't mean that you're angry at him. It doesn't mean that you're uh, hostile towards him. You could actually have no problem with him at all. The word rejection, reject, has nothing to do with indignation. It has everything to do with indifference. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, I have no problem with Jesus. Jesus is great. That's why I come to church. He's one of my, I have put him in my portfolio. I have, I have my work portfolio, I have my family portfolio, and I have my spiritual portfolio. Jesus is great. But listen, if Jesus has no implications on how you live your life Monday through Saturday, that means you have not built your life on Jesus because the word rejection has nothing to do with indignation. It has everything to do with indifference. So, so if the only time you think about God is on Sundays then there's a good chance you're not building your life on Jesus. Actually, there's a pretty, pretty much 100% chance you're not building your life on Jesus because that's what that means, okay? So if you want to know where you are, you got to see how precious he's becoming and how indifferent you are. Those will be the first. That, if, if I'm doing an inspection on your house, that's the first way you can tell whether you're building on the cornerstone. The second way is not just your view of, of the cornerstone, but it's actually your interaction with the cornerstone. Because look what it says at the, at, the, at the end of verse six. It says, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then it says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. So one of the ways you can tell whether or not Jesus is your cornerstone is, do you trust in him? Do you believe in him? And the word there, believe, in Greek, it means to completely trust and rely on someone. It means to be convinced of someone. It means to be persuaded of someone. So, so the word believe there is much more than just hope, wishful thinking. It's a, it's a conviction. It's a conviction. And so if, if you don't believe in Jesus fully and totally and completely, and, or, or at least you're not, or, or at, the, at the very least growing in that, in the, towards that direction, then there's a good chance there's something other than Jesus as your cornerstone. And I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians because you might be replacing Jesus if you're a Christian with something smaller than him, okay? That's what's, this is why this is so important because you will see it you see, the, the way that people, I've, used, I've seen pastors do this in the past, the way they illustrate it is they take a chair, right? So imagine I had a chair here in, in, in front of me. There's a difference between knowing, let's say Jesus is the chair. There's a difference between knowing there's a chair there. There's a difference between seeing the chair and even believing that the chair can hold you up and you actually sitting in the chair, right? Everyone, if you're here today, there's a good chance you believe there's a chair and that chair is Jesus. But if you're not sitting in that chair, it doesn't matter. You're not, he doesn't want your mental assent. He wants your full commitment. That's why this is so important. Because you know you are growing, you know that Jesus is your cornerstone to the, to, to the degree that he's your cornerstone, to that degree you are sitting in that chair and leaning on nothing else but him. That's why this word is important, okay? And then he says, listen to this. So, so we're still talking about your interaction. So you can tell, you can tell uh, if he's your cornerstone by how you interact with him. And the first way you can interact with him is by believing in him, by trusting in him. 
But the second way you can interact with him that reveals to you that he's not your cornerstone, it says that a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that, and you go to the next verse, uh, a rock that makes them fall. So, so there's only two ways you can interact with this rock. Either he is the rock that you build your whole life on and he's essential to you, or you ignore him and he's a nuisance to you and you trip over him. The word, the word there actually, to stumble, it, it, it has the idea of a loose, a loose stone that you trip over on a path. Like in, 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 in ancient Israel, there was stone paths. They didn't have any pavement. So you would walk on stone paths. The, the, the idea there is someone who's, who's, who, who, who steps on a stone and loses its footing. That's what the, the idea there. Now, here's the thing. As I studied this week, this was probably the part that most frustrated me because every commentary that I looked at, every, every person that I listened to, no one knew what to do with these, these verses. That the stone that makes you stumble and the one that makes you fall, and then actually there's some other places in Scripture where it says that the very stone that makes you stumble is the stone that crushes you and shatters you into pieces. And every commentary I looked at, no one had an answer. Like, no one really knew what it meant. Like, ah, uh, we don't want to get into it because we don't want to guess wrong. But here's what one commentator said that I found really interesting. He says, listen, regardless of what this imagery means, the one thing that we know for sure is that this rock is extremely powerful. We don't really get all the imagery, but we know for a fact is that this rock is extremely powerful. Here's why. Because whatever decision you make about this stone, about this cornerstone, will either rescue your life or destroy your life. It's the most important decision you will ever make. Listen, the most important decision you'll ever make has nothing to do with who you're going to marry, with what career you're going to have, with where you're going to invest your, your, your stock. The most important decision you will ever make is a decision you make about this stone. And in whatever that means, at the very least what it means is that this is the most powerful cornerstone you'll ever make a decision about. It will either rescue your life or it will destroy your life. Okay? So the first way we can tell if you're building your life on Jesus, is by your view of him, your view of the cornerstone. The second way you can tell if you're building your life on this cornerstone is by your interaction with him. And the third way, this is probably the one that most surprised me this week. If you go back to the previous section, uh, the previous verse, look at this. He says, the third way you can tell is by how, is by how Jesus says you could, you could tell a tree by its fruit is by looking at the fruit that your life is producing. The word I want you to see there is the word shame. Listen to this. He says, the one who trusts in Jesus or in him will never be put to shame. Now, that's a really interesting word, and here's why. Because in Greek, there are several different meanings to that word. It's so much so that you can read that same verse in multiple different versions, and they all translate that word differently. Some translate, some, some translate the word shame. Some translate the word uh, disappointment, uh, disappointed. Some translate it uh, 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 dashed hopes. Because it could literally mean all that, all those. The, the word there in the Greek for shame, it could mean disappointment, it can mean shame, it can mean humiliation, and it can mean dashed hopes. So listen to this, guys. I need you to follow along with me. One of the ways you can tell whether or not you have Jesus as your cornerstone is by looking at how disappointed you are. Your disappointment will reveal to you what is actually the cornerstone of your life? Here's how I've described it in the past. Here's, what, here's how I would define disappointment. Here are your expectations, and here is reality, right? Disappointment is the gap between those two things. Expectations up here, reality here. The higher the expectations and the lower the reality, the bigger the disappointment, right? 
Now, here's what Peter's saying. I need you to follow along with me. Peter is not saying that as a Christian, you're not going to experience disappointment. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that this stone is never going to disappoint you. Okay? You are going to experience disappointment as a, as a, non, as a Christian, but the stone is never going to be the source of that disappointment. Now, here's the thing. Here's why, I, I, because Peter can easily tell us, hey, be a robot and never be disappointed again. That's not what he says. Here's what he says. He says, the reason why Christians experience disappointment differently is because no matter how disappointed I am in my marriage or in my, in my job or with my children or in my singleness, no matter how disappointed I am, no matter how big the gap is between my expectations and my reality, in the gospel, there is such a, um, how do I say this? The gospel, let me put this, the gospel is the one area in your life where whatever your expectations are, the reality is infinitely greater. Okay? See, when, when people tell you, oh, oh every, that's too good to be true, most of the time they're right. Everything else, in, pretty much everything in your life is too good to be true. 99.9% of it. But the one thing that's not too good to be true is the gospel. The gospel is the only area in your life where no matter how high your expectations are, the reality is infinitely greater than your expectations. So here's why this is, this is important. The reason why Christians experience disappointment differently is not because they don't feel disappointed, but because the overwhelming contentment that comes from the gospel swallows up the disappointment in any other area of my life. Does that make sense? So it's not that I don't feel disappointment. It's just that I'm not crushed by it. Because if what Jesus says about me is true, then it really doesn't matter how my marriage is doing or my finances are doing. Those things matter, but at the end of the day, they don't define me. Because if this good news is true, I can take any bad news on. Isn't that beautiful? That's how you know. That's how you know. And so as we move to the the third point, third and final point, here's the question I want to ask you. As you look at your life, in which areas of your life are you most experiencing disappointment? And by disappointment, I mean you're either disappointed with the circumstances or you feel like you're disappointing someone else. In which areas of your life are you most experiencing disappointment? There's a good chance that in that area, there's something other than Jesus at the foundation of that, of that area. Another way you could look at it is in which area of your life are you most feeling shame and guilt? So that's the word that's used there. Remember, we said that guilt has to do with doing something wrong. Shame has to do with being wrong yourself. Guilt has to do with doing something, that, that, doing something dirty. Shame has to do with feeling dirty. Ask yourself, in which area of my life do I most feel shame and guilt? Maybe it's an addiction you have. Maybe it's uh, something in your past. Maybe it's something in your, whatever it is. Whatever area that is, there's a good chance that Jesus is not the cornerstone of that area. Because to the degree that Jesus is your cornerstone, to that same degree, you can overcome the disappointment and the shame that's in that area of your life. Okay? So, let's go back to the three points. We've seen the need of the cornerstone. We've seen the marks of the cornerstone. And I want to conclude now by looking at the costs. The costs. Look what it says, um, I want to read to you again uh, verse 6, where the quotation starts. He says, see, or behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious stone. See, the last thing I want you to see here is I want you to see the cost. Because if you don't understand the cost, the price that had to be paid, you're not going to really understand your need, and you're not going to display the marks. You need to understand the cost. You see, here's what's interesting. I didn't know this, but as I studied this week, what I discovered is that in ancient days, in Jesus' day, 
the most expensive part of the house was the cornerstone. It was the most expensive part. It was the part that you most needed to get right. And almost always, it was the most beautiful part. There was always, almost always a design on it that whoever made it would make sure to put their signature on it. So, so it was the most expensive part of any house. This is the way it is. Why? Because it needed to be strong and it needed to hold up your house, okay? The most expensive part. Here's what's interesting. Just like it was costly to build a house with a cornerstone back then, just like a cornerstone was costly back then, the cornerstone that we've been talking about this morning is infinitely more costly. As a matter of fact, the, where, where he says um, uh, in verse 7, now to you who believe, go back to verse 7, says now to you who believe this stone is precious, where he, the, the, the actually no, you know what, go back to verse 4, you were right, the, the previous section. Uh, See, I lay a stone, he, he's quoting from Isaiah there where he says in verse 6, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious stone. The, the, the interesting about the word precious in Hebrew, because that's a Hebrew verse, uh, 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 ver- it's in the Hebrew, the word in Hebrew, precious, actually means costly. It means expensive. That's what it means in Hebrew. And the only way that you and I are ever going to understand the need of this cornerstone and, and, and display the marks of this cornerstone is if we understand the cost of this cornerstone, the price that had to be paid for this cornerstone to be laid down. Now, here's what's interesting. When you, if, you, if you go back to Isaiah where this verse is quoted from, Isaiah never actually reveals to you who the cornerstone is. He talks about the cornerstone, and actually all throughout the Old Testament, you hear about the cornerstone again and again and again, but you never actually find out who the cornerstone is. It isn't until Matthew chapter 21 when Jesus is sitting there, and he's with the, the religious people, and the religious Pharisees, and he's arguing with them. Jesus tells a parable, and in that parable, he reveals who the cornerstone actually is. Here's the parable that Jesus tells them. He says, listen, there was once a rich landowner who, who who established a piece of land. When he left, he set some tenants there to watch over the land. Over time, he decided to send some, some, some people to go get money, to get his money off the land. When he got there, the, the first representative, the tenants murdered him and kept the money to themselves. Then he sent another one, and then they murdered him, and they kept the money to themselves. And then they sent another one, and they murdered him, and then they, they kept the money to themselves. Then finally, the landowner, here's what Jesus says in the parable, the landowner decides, you know what I'll do? I will send my son. I will send my heir because if my heir goes, there's no way they're going to kill my heir. And then what happens? He sends the heir and they kill him too. And then you know what Jesus says right after that? He quotes this verse. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So you know who the son is? Jesus is. The the reason why this, this cornerstone is the most expensive, most costly, uh, 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 irreplaceable cornerstone ever is because it cost Jesus his blood. It cost Jesus his life. You know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that surprised me as I studied this week is Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. That's, one of the, that's actually the, the, the verse he quotes when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he tells them, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So I decided, okay, let me go back and read Psalm 118. I don't know if you guys know this about Psalm 118. I know I didn't. But Psalm 118 is one of the most beautiful psalms I've ever read. As, as a matter of fact, as you read through it, there's a bunch of gospel promises that are made. It promises that the Lord is good, that the Lord will be your shield, that the Lord will be your salvation. And it's gospel promise after gospel promise after gospel promise. And then right in the middle of this psalm, right in the middle of it, it says, but the stone that the builders rejected has become their cornerstone. And you're like, that, it, 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 doesn't, it almost doesn't fit because there's promise after promise after promise after promise. And then all of a sudden there's a punishment. And you're like, what? How does that even work? And then to make it even worse, right after it says that the, the 
the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Immediately after it, here's what the passage says. It says, and it's the Lord who has done this. So not only is someone being punished, but it's the Lord who's doing the punishing. And, and, I, and I read it, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. It, it, it almost doesn't fit. Like, it really doesn't fit if you look at the psalm. But here's what's beautiful, guys. In order for us to receive the promises of Psalm 18, someone was going to have to receive the punishment of Psalm 118. In order for us to receive the promises of it, someone had to receive the punishment of it. And the person who received the punishment so that all those promises can be true of us was Jesus. You see, a lot of people say that what killed Jesus was the rejection of the people around him. That's not what killed Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus expected it. All you got to do is look at this verse to know that Jesus expected to be, to be rejected by human beings. The rejection that killed Jesus was the rejection of his father. That's what murdered Jesus. That's what killed Jesus. See, Jesus understood that in order to be our life, he would have to give his life. And that's what he did at the cross. Listen, the reason why we can know that when we place our trust in God, God will never put us to shame is because when Jesus put his trust in God, God did put him to shame. Okay? The reason why we know that no matter what storm we go through, God is going to be there with us because Jesus is our cornerstone. The reason why we can know that is because when Jesus went through his ultimate storm, God wasn't there for him. Listen, the reason why you and I can be absolutely positive that Jesus can carry the weight of our lives as our cornerstone is because at the cross, he carried the weight of our sin as our Savior. That's the gospel, guys. To the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you meditate on that, to the degree that you understand the cost of this cornerstone, to that same degree, you will see the need of it and you will display the marks of it. Amen?